music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. She's the producer, songwriter and DJ whose avant-garde techno pop has seen her release three extraordinary albums to date. The most recent LP8 was released earlier this year. Her combination of ethereal, atmospheric and at times industrial has seen her win fans in Bjork, St. Vincent and John Cale, all of whom she's gone on to collaborate with. Having joined us at Blue Dot in 2019, she returns as part of our Friday lineup this July alongside Spiritualized, Koji Radical, Groove Armada, and more. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast with Kelly Lee Owens. Kelly, welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You've just released your new album then, LP8. What was the genesis of this latest work? Well, I mean, as we know, it's been an interesting time the past few years. Won't to talk too much about that. However, it gave me an opportunity to go on the last flight before they closed the borders on me. And um, I basically felt like I'd been transported um, into the future, into this strange point in time where I had the ability to make whatever record I wanted to without any expectation or pressure. And so I texted my uh, label after eight days of making this record saying I'd kind of made, made what would be my eighth record. And um, here we are. <laughs> you describe your previous album in a song that was as an awakening album. What comes after an awakening album? Ah, uh, that's a good question. You know what? I think I've didn't know and that's why in some senses I've been grateful for this time uh, to explore something left field even for myself let's just say and it's even hard to describe it as an album almost Um, this was the least ego-driven thing I'd ever done and have ever done so far and it really really just is me exploring my total subconscious so if the last one was in a song this is in a in a song (laughs) I think it's quite dark at times. So that's interesting what you've just said. I think it's quite dark in places. It verges on being uneasy and also has this urgency about its energy. How does the album make you feel, Kelly? Mm, Good question. I think in moments it feels confronting, which, you know, I had an intention to make it feel that way. It wasn't supposed to be comfortable. It wasn't supposed to, it was supposed to represent the world as it is which in moments is dark, which in moments is uncomfortable, but also in moments we find that beauty and expanse. And so I wanted to to create, in a sense, like people say honest records, but like in a way of honesty of like what we're currently possibly experiencing as a, as a collective. I want to go into the detail of banking it. So where did it start life? Started life in a small studio in Oslo in Norway. Uh, it was minus 16 degrees outside and it was snowing every day. It was very pure and crystalline and it was an escape from grey January London uh, weather. So myself and Lassa Moorhag, uh, we hold ourselves up in his studio where we didn't use any MIDI. We didn't use anything other than analogue instruments and basically hit record. And I was sat with a analog synth on my lap for those eight days, occasionally getting up to um, come up with vocal, I wouldn't quite say melodies, but, you know, percussive moments from my voice, uh, hitting like real big, like kick drums. Like it was all very, very analog. 
So um, as I said earlier, I just channeled kind of my subconscious and built layers upon layers upon layers and textures upon textures. And um, yeah, the final result is there for you all to hear. Where are the samples from? There are no samples apart from Nana Piano. So <laughs> that one, interestingly, I never thought I would put out. That was recorded, believe it or not. You might be able to believe it with the sound quality, but on my iPhone. Um, in my house in London at the time, um, on an out-of-tune piano, and I wrote it just after my nana had passed away. And the birds that you hear were sampled in her garden after she'd passed away. And the two things seemed to mirror each other and have like a call and response. And so Lassa heard this and I was quite vulnerable in saying, I have this recording, but you know, I don't play piano. I don't really know how to play piano, but I like to improvise. And so that ended up being one of the only organic sounds that you hear on the album. Interesting. Are you an electro act? Are you, is that how you describe yourself? Um, people call me an electronic producer, which I think, you know, does have some resonance with me. But I also am interested, as you know, in, as you say, sampling in nature, in organic sounds. And I come from an indie background. So weaving all of these in, you know, it's not just one box, perhaps, that I fit into. Yeah. But interesting that you've gone down the road of so analogue for the album, despite being an electronic producer. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, analogue synths have always been my love since I discovered them and I would say you know 2012 I was like a latecomer to this stuff I actually never used to respect dance music I thought it was way too easy uh you know devoid of all emotion and um I couldn't have been more wrong I think like for me the analog synths especially and the sequences they have lives of their own and they often have things that people call mistakes happen but I always leave those kind of wonky, weird moments in and, and it's kind of a joy. It's ex an extension of self to me. Wonky moments, good, aren't they? <laughs> they're amazing. They're, they're, they're my sort of, you know, there's a joy of mine to experience the wonky moments in life and uh, on record. <laughs> you mentioned being from an indie background, being in an indie band. Was that going to be the career? No, never. Not someone else's band. I... Uh, too strong in my ideas and my vision to ever perhaps fully compromise. And uh, I was in a band, you know, four other egos, and that was really difficult. <laughs> so that was kind of like something I'd always wanted to tick off the list. Music was always on the agenda. Creating my own record, though, was the ultimate for me. So did you not enjoy your time in the band? I think it was quite difficult because... It can be very high school-esque sometimes, you know, like young, young, ambitious people um, with their egos and their ideas and the conflicting things. Also, it can be beautiful and fun and harmonious and joyous. But for me, it was, you know, uh, some of that kind of high school stuff took away from the actual core for me, which was the music. And I actually didn't write the music. I was just basically playing uh, and singing the harmonies. And uh, it wasn't enough. You grew up in North Wales, and that's where the band were, right? Uh, no, actually, I, I, really, I met them a lot later. So when I moved uh, to London, um, yeah, a friend of mine, Kurt, he was in The Pains of Being Pure at Heart, uh, that sort of uh, shoegazy indie band, and he said that his friends were looking for someone to play bass. And me being me, I tend to throw myself into situations, and I couldn't really play bass, but I was like, I could learn. I can definitely sing and I've always wanted to be in a band. So here we go. <laughs> so this is post being a nurse. Yes. Okay. So yeah. 
tell me about that. How long were you actually a nurse for? Well, it's important that I distinguish that I was an auxiliary nurse, an assistant to a nurse, and I worked in nurses, and I worked in uh, Christie's Cancer Research Hospital in Manchester. So, as you know, Manchester's not very far away from the border of Wales, luckily for me, and uh, Manchester was the first place that I experienced proper live music, I would say. It's a shame that you have to leave Wales Oh, I had to leave Wales to experience that sometimes, but Manchester was the closest big city and my friends would put on nights there and I'd go see bands there and it really opened up my eyes and my ears. Um, but yeah, I basically was 17, no, 18, 19 when I worked as an auxiliary nurse. So for two years, um, I think it was 2008 and 2007, maybe. I grew up not far from where you're from, so I know that there are a very few places to see live music in North Wales, and I'm from Shropshire, um, close to where you're from. And so I wonder, did you dream of a career in music? How did you sort of start to focus? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I've always been a very driven person, and something in me was always curious about the world at large. I I knew I was never going to stay in Wales, even if almost all the opportunities would be there for me, which to be honest, they weren't. And that's a real major issue for children in Wales. Um, There are things being done about that now, but that's another story. Um, And yeah, I just followed my passion as cheesy as that sounded, sounds, sorry. And I drove myself to Manchester, um, three or four times a week as soon as I got a car when I was 18 <laughs> and my mom never saw me and I just fell in love with live music and I knew I couldn't read or write music so I thought perhaps I won't get to make music in the way I want as a solo artist but of course then working with Daniel Avery and and, and James Greenwood and discovering um, electronic production and music and seeing how it could be created without having to understand how to play an instrument that just opened up a whole new world for me and um really my journey begins there and 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 technically quite late I guess by the music industry standards um I was around 25 when I wrote my first song but I'm really glad that I was now because having worked in record stores for 10 years and sort of soaking everything up I really felt like I made something that was authentic to me as opposed to creating what I thought would be cool, you know. Was Daniel, would you say, a tipping point for you? Was that a life-changing moment meeting him? Yeah, I think it was. Um, He just kept offering opportunities to me. And I think we all need that. We need one or two people to sort of keep saying yes or keep offering us um, just moments where we can shine, really. And he knew I could sing and he loved my speaking voice. He would sort of say that occasionally. And so the first thing we did together was a track called Drone Logic. You sound a bit less Welsh these days. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if I ever have sounded really Welsh. I'm not from the South where there's this right, really, you know, Kelly, you know, my actually <laughs> my English teacher, ironically, would say Kelly, stop chatting. And he was from South Wales. <laughs> And he weirdly went on to teach English to Japanese people. So that, that'll be interesting to meet those people. But um, yeah, I've only ever had kind of more subtle lilts, I would say. And, you know, as someone who isn't a um, first language kind of Welsh speaker, um, I guess that makes more sense. What was life like growing up in North Wales? 
Um, really idyllic in some senses. Um, the house that I grew up in was huge. My dad was a carpenter and it was an old coach house that was burnt down. And my dad being really creative and good and practical, uh, just redesigned and rebuilt this whole house and um, got to play in fields with streams running by and sit in my trees and um, just be totally immersed in nature, write poetry, play with, you know, feral kittens in barns. I mean, like it it was, it was pretty good in that sense. Um, But as I kind of briefly touched on before, it was also hard to be someone who had, you know, real big ambition to sort of know what to do with it. Like when I spoke to my careers advisor and said, I either want to be a nurse, doctor, or a musician, a composer, they just immediately went, okay, well, let's just focus on the nurse thing because we know how to get you there. It didn't seem to be a viable thing that was sort of supported um, in getting you to the sort of big stage, you know, which is um, really difficult. And there's a lot of poverty in Wales. There's a lot of problems. There's lots of drug issues. Wales has been neglected for a long, long time. And um, getting to know recently Michael Sheen after working with him on Corner of My Sky you know, he's someone I admire immensely and someone who was doing a lot for um, Welsh communities and children, especially. Curious about that picture that you paint of that young girl and the feral kittens, the babbling brooks. Were you writing music back then or poetry? I was actually. I didn't know it was poetry, even though obviously, you know, Wales, a land of song, poets and everything else. It was just um, my way of connecting to the world and to myself and understanding myself. I've always written things down. That's been my way of, like I say, just kind of connecting ultimately and understanding. Um, I was quite a a shy child, believe it or not. And um, yeah, I think my voice also with singing was my other way of expressing myself and connecting to the world. And Recently, I found like post-it notes from when I was about five and I'd written like a love song and I'd perform it to my nana in the back garden, like a classic, you know, moment with like the, the brush, end of the brush singing. And I get my best friend Zoe who lives next door to come and do it with me. And she was like, oh, you know, she liked it. But Jesus, we have to do it 10 million times and it has to be perfect. And then she's got to harmonize. And then I'd also be um, reenacting like my favorite scenes from films and like we'd be doing the lines together and stuff. And like, you know, it was it was always there somewhere. You say you were shy. Are you a natural (laughs) born performer, though? It sounds so icky to say yes, but I if I'm being honest, I yeah, I think so. And I, I don't know why. I just always felt at home on the stage. And is that still the case? Yeah, it is. Um, Apart from being in like the ocean, I think it's one of the places that I feel most alive. I wonder then if you can describe stepping out in front of, what's the biggest crowd you've ever played to? God, I'm terrible with numbers and venue sizes, but um, like seven, 8,000 people maybe. Okay, where would that have been? At a festival somewhere. Um, the, actually, Greenman Festival was huge. I was on at midnight, and it was like the first show of In a Song, and it was like a homecoming. That was a huge moment. Okay, so I want you to try and describe walking out onto that stage. 
take yourself back into that moment? It's a weird one. It's like this uh, <laughs> split personality thing. So before I go on, I'm literally praying. And I don't even know. T- I'm spiritual, not religious. So I'm kind of praying to like my ancestors and my nana. And I'm like trying to garner this kind of support and asking that everything will go well. Because my main focus is on other people. Like, yes, I'm there and people are there for me. But really, it's not. It's about the music and it's about the sound and it's about this communal thing and it's about transcendence and so I'm usually feeling really nervous and that hasn't gone away for me Uh, but it comes from a place I now know that means I want to do a really really good job um, for other people and um, yeah so I'm really nervous usually I'm praying to God that nothing goes wrong technically because that's happened many a time I can tell you And, um, but yeah, it's that classic thing. Like when I walk out on the stage, something shifts and it's like, okay, we're going in, something takes over, something's in command and I'm there to do a job, but not in a boring sense, just in a sense that like, I'm here for you. I'm here for them. I'm here to, to channel something and create a moment that hopefully inspires and um, uplifts people. You've mentioned your nana now several times. <laughs> Tell us about her. Ah, uh, well, what a woman. I mean, more like a mother than anything else to me. St- typical strong Welsh matriarch, you know, took no crap. Uh, <laughs> put my granddad in his place several times a day. Um, wasn't wasn't going to be the traditional housewife, but at the same time loved family and loved bringing people together and loved music and loved dancing and loved singing and she never got to live that dream out um so she was my number one fan and she came to my first ever live show in London in a basement at the waiting room in Stoke Newington yeah yeah so she she just was the embodiment of of love and strength and tenacity and uh yeah she's missed dearly she'd be loving what you're doing now oh yeah she you know what I actually have a video I hadn't had a feeling she was going to pass within a year or so and so I started recording audio recordings of our conversations sometimes and um taking videos and I have a video of me playing demos of in a song to her and she's tapping away like this. Oh, I'd be good on stage. I'd be good. I could play the keyboard, you know? And um, she said, Oh, Kelly, um, you've always had a good voice, but it's the best I've ever heard it. It's the best it's ever been, you know? And I just, I, those moments just, she just loved me so much. And yeah, she's, yeah, she's but she's on stage with me because obviously I called that track Jeanette after her and I made the videos with this guy called Felix Gord and we have the pixels at the end of Jeanette come into a photograph of her face, which I took next to her roses in, in the garden in Wales. And so she's on stage with me every night. There's, there's no escaping Jeanette. And if you met her and knew her, then you know that was not going to be possible ever, How not even in death. she have coped with one of your DJ sets? Oh, she came to watch me support John Hopkins in Manchester and that gets really banging. You know, mine does, 
but John's especially does. And she was bopping. I've got videos of her like dancing away. My granddad, bless him, even came to that show. He wore his little leather jacket and, you know, he's got hearing aids. He definitely took them out definitely took them out but he was you could still feel the bass and he was you know had his little beer in his hand so oh she loved all kinds of music it doesn't matter and she loved John and she knew that John was like supporting me and helping me and being a good friend and a mentor and she was so happy and I'd made luminous spaces with him and that track got me through her death actually because it was released in the sort of same year or like just around that time. And so it's weird. I, I kind of made something almost in, in hindsight without knowing that she was going to pass exactly when she did. But um, yeah, amazing woman. Daniel, you've mentioned John, two of the collaborators that you've worked with most. Tell me what they're both like to work with. I'd love to get inside the workings of, let's do Daniel first. Tell me about Daniel in the studio. I describe him as like a collector. So, you know, people like Bowie, where they are cherry picking, they've got this immense, vast knowledge of all kinds of music. Like Daniel Avery is a music fan, first and foremost, and he listens to a lot of music. He understands a lot about music. And so he always has lots of ideas brim round and like he works with different people, but it's like me. I can work with different people, but it always sounds like me. He he has vision. And um, like I say, he is someone who facilitates other people in the mix. And um, actually, he's just about to release a track where I'm speaking on it again. Nothing, not the same as Drone Logic, but um, I just open it with some spoken word. And um, that was important to both of us that we come full circle um, in that way. So he's been a great... Um, friend and supportive nourishing person in my life john oh (laughs) oh i get i get emotional about john it's like we we meet on so many levels like spiritually like musically i i i don't expect to get emotional but like he really has helped me so much like he even with lpa he listened to it um we listened to it at his house in his studio and um I knew the mixes weren't good enough. I'd mix them with Lassa and we were trying to do it ourselves. And I, cause we thought we put this out really quickly. And then I thought they're not good enough, but I'll play them to John and I trusted his opinion. He said, yep, they're not good enough. And get Sharif to do it again. Sharif is my mixing engineer, John's engineer for the studio for the last 11 years. And um, John helped shape LP8 um, as well in the background, just by checking in on me, checking in on the music. And yeah, since the first album has just took me under his his wing and I've never met someone who I connect with on so many levels <laughs> that to the point where we said I said I'm gonna come around to yours now I'll play you this stuff and he's like it's kind of like this it's kind of like and he said, it sounds like we made the same album and I said you know what it wouldn't surprise me so he'd been making music for psychedelic therapy and I've been making LP8 and uh John and I it feels like we're on the same journey. How old are you, Kelly? Do you mind me asking? Yeah, I'm 33. It's been a, a phenomenal rise to success. <laughs> oh, I don't know what to say to that. Um, it's, weird, it's a weird 
word, isn't it? Success. Like, well, I am suppo- I successful? <laughs> yeah, you are very successful and I'm allowed to judge that. What I would say, I suppose, it's about being 33 and so accomplished. Does that feel more comfortable? That feels nice. Yeah, thank you. Um, who else yeah. have you liked working with, Daniel and John? Who else? Mm. Well, the main person, you know, underlying... A lot of this is, is James, who, you know, was a very close friend of mine for a long, a long time before we started working together. And he's got his own project, Ghost Culture. And he's one of the most amazing, unbelievable producers and writers that I've ever met in my life. Um, one of the most talented people. And there's a synergy. There was a synergy in the room when me, Dan and James were doing, you know, Drone Logic and Keep Walking. And there's been a synergy for James and I creatively um, ever since so that's been a huge part of my life which you know is is always going to be there and um obviously I work with someone different this time with with LPA which felt important to me and still feels immensely important to me um but just on the whole who I enjoyed working with I mean <laughs> I can I can say John Cale I mean I can't actually believe I can say John Cale and recently he did an interview I think it was like BBC we're doing like a reflective kind of program on him and his work and he was talking about our collaboration and saying that I really helped him and I helped him connect to his Welsh identity again and his language and I helped him through it I'm going like I just I can't it's so surreal to me and um, I'm so grateful that I've been able to work with him in this lifetime. And of course I have to say Bjork because I'm wearing right now the homo- homogenic um, jumper. I mean, it's, it's kind of another obvious one, but yeah, unbelievable. How was Bjork? Oh my God. Well, she reached out directly to her management. And so Derek and her label and said, Derek was like, Bjork has asked us directly to reach out to Kelly. And I just remember like staring at that email being like, this is the moment I've been waiting for <laughs> my whole life in a way because I have so much respect for her because she is an example to me of a woman who is a hundred percent her creative self with no compromises yet is able to work again, shapeshift with anyone yet. It's still her universe. Why does no one sound like Bjork? Because she's true to herself because she's true to herself. And I, I, I relate to that. You know, I could have gone away and made a, a, a dance pop record next for the thing that people would be expecting me to do. Do this next thing. She doesn't do what you expect of her. In fact, she'll probably go ahead and do the opposite. But she'll do whatever feels like right to her with integrity. And, and this like just exists on this other plane. And she reminds me of the magic, you know, in, in this life. I always think that uh, with, with Bjork, um, she may be an inspiration to so many, but so few people replicate what she does. There are very few direct comparisons. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, I, I think that's why she is such an inspiration, because it's almost like you, can't, you can hear it, but how, how do you describe that in words? It's, it's there for you to hear and it's there for you to feel and experience, but she is her own entity and as I say, is always true to herself, is in communes with nature, communes with the cosmos, is beyond like capitalism. Because I think we're, we're, we're stuck in this cycle where artists have to be this and to be successful, you've got to do stuff that is popular on TikTok. And obviously she grew up in a privileged, the 90s, there was heaps of money. 
But what she did with that was still true to her core of what she knew in that moment. And she is, you know, the authentic creator. Is that your ambition? It's what I inspired to be like. Yeah, I don't know if I achieve it, but I try my my best and my hardest. And that's why putting out something like LP8 was just like uh, kind of, you know, nerve wracking when it actually came to it. I thought, oh, Christ, like I'm actually going to put this out. <laughs> but it was what needed needed to be made. It's not up to me. I, I am bowing down to the other. It's not up to me. Is the eight infinity too? Yeah, so I have this tattoo, ah. which is eight, because it looks this way and you can see it like that. So I, I'm born in the eighth month in 88, and eight has appeared in my life um, as a symbol in terms of when I'm kind of on the right path. Um, but this album was recorded, well, in eight days. And when I bounced all of the sound in those eight days, no word of a lie, it came down to 80 minutes and eight seconds of sound. Whoa. Yeah. So, and I finished it on a new moon in Virgo and like my sun sign is Virgo. And I was like, okay, this is a new chapter for me. That's for sure. And, um, and I felt like I'd made my eighth record, like, you know, an eighth record that Bjork, Bjork would make, you know? So I texted my label saying that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you said that earlier that this was what record eight might sound like and yes. all of the other eight stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. It wasn't just, it, it was all of it that made me sort of understand what this was. And I'm, this is the thing. People think that you're in control the whole time. Like yes, to a degree by not compromising creatively too much with other people, but like, same time you're not the driver at all you're you're the vessel and it's so cheesy but I was the vessel I wonder how you rewind to album number four now (laughs) (laughs) well I still got to make album number three you see because this is this is my eighth album so number three hasn't been made yet do you know what I mean (laughs) no you're messing with my head played at blue dot before Kelly and that was in 2019 how was that for you what do you remember about it Oh my God. It was amazing for several reasons. So I've always wanted to play Blue Dot. I love the place that it's in. I am also a science nerd as well as being super spiritual. Like it's all connected to me. Love the whole idea of it. Love that it's really close to where I'm from. It's really close to Wales. I also lived in Manchester, as I said, for a couple of years. Um, So the whole place is just close to me. But that time I had been on a small DJ tour around America and Mexico. And I, and I spent a few days in Mexico City and I got to Frida Kahlo's house and I was eating all these wonderful tacos and like everything else. And I basically stepped off the plane and then got on a train <laughs> and came up to play that show. So I was totally out of my head in a, in a, in a, in a way of just like sleep deprived. But I was playing just before John. So I saw him, that gave me a boost. And then my family came, my mom and her partner and her friends, the little VIP passes and they know John and it was like, and they were John's crew. And it was just like a big backstage family energy. And my mom said, uh, so the, obviously every time in a festival you play, the tent usually clears because you've got like half an hour till the next act. So my mom was standing there half an hour before as we were setting up 
and thought, oh God, no one's going to come. She told me this later. Oh God, no one's going to turn up. And then someone announced uh, Kelly Lee Owens next on so-and-so stage. And then she said, everyone ran inside, like literally ran. And it just filled, I don't know, it's like three or 4,000 people or something. And she was just so proud, you know. Um, so yeah, it was a wonderful moment. And what's the plan for this year? Well, it's a, it's a new and improved set since then. And we have Inner Song to play live. And honestly, the first two albums are the things I'm going to be playing. LP8 exists in a different realm that may be played live at some point. But this is a, just a journey uh, between the two albums. And it starts very expansive and it ends up absolutely banging. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Since you've been doing so much DJing of late, is there a DJ element to the set? I think there is just anyway because you know stuff I create has that techno edge always so but yeah one can't help but uh be influenced by DJing um because you understand the response from the crowd and that is a different response than you want when you're creating a record ultimately um so towards the end of the set things have been tweaked and I'm not gonna lie melt the live version is it's my favorite thing ever. It's my favorite. On Jeanette and Melt are just like people are crying and dancing all at the same time. It's it's I've never experienced anything like it. The bass on Melt, it's like I almost like crack people's teeth. Like people, <laughs> I push people to the edge, you know, and I want them to just sort of walk away like what what have I just experienced? So that's usually the response I get. So yeah. Sounds amazing. Can't wait. I have to ask you about your anthem for the Women's World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> How did that come about? Good question. Uh, no, I'm, I'm signed with um, Decca Universal Publishing and uh, they put me forward for this because FIFA were talking about working, of course, with a female producer and writer that was extremely important considering it's the women's world cup um and someone who's interested in sampling and working with nature and natural samples and sound and also someone who can create euphoria and big moments and they just thought luckily thought kelly and when i first got told um that it might happen you know usually there's like 20 other people involved so you're like oh yeah all right and then they'll give you like a little bit of money to do a demo and then my manager's like, no, 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 they just, they just picked you. Like, they don't even need to hear a demo. Like, you're just going to do it. And so uh, that was made also very quickly. And I was having these meetings with like 50 people on Zoom, you know, with the biggest team in the world, like Universal Publishing and FIFA. And I'm just going like, what am I doing here? Like, this is mad. But just, you know, did everything and talked about the sound and the music and understood the journey that they were after. And actually, they had heaps and heaps of integrity and really cared about this being something beyond football. It was about, you know, putting women on on, on platform and uh, making this, like I say, bigger than just this one tournament. And they like genuinely, genuinely care. And so I, I don't think I could have done it if it was just super corporate and cold. Like I, really, I have it, lots of integrity with that stuff and I say no to a lot of stuff. This, it felt right. What else, then? So there's tour, as I said, coming up. And it's kind of rounding off the Inner Song campaign and celebrating that. 
I may or may not have some live recordings of my set that may or may not be released. I'm not sure yet, but people are kind of begging me for it. So that's one thing that might be on the horizon. There's also, you know, some workings of LP8 that are very different in, in tone and pace, which may or may not appear. And then, of course, I have to write my so-called third record. Um, so there's a lot to do. <laughs> I'm driving at another collaboration. Are you going to reveal who you might or might not be working with? Oh, well, I can't really say if there is anything, um, but I will just say that I'm open more than ever to all different kinds of like genres and artists because I don't want to be pigeonholed because I just like, I'm a music fan. I said I worked in record stores for 10 years. Like I've got so much like different tastes, you know, and, and things that I love. So the world is opening and expanding. In which direction? We will wait and see. <laughs> we cannot wait to see you live under the giant space telescope at Jodrell Bank for Blue Dot 2022. Kelly, thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to the Blue Dot Podcast with Kelly Lee Owens. Kelly joins Spiritualized, Groove Armada, Koji Radical and more on Friday at Blue Dot 2022 as part of our long-awaited return to Jodrell Bank this July. Day and weekend tickets are on sale now. Explore the weekend at discovertheblue.com. Listener.